Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series held on March 13, 2019, What Your Treasurers Really Need to Know About Tax Reform. The panelists for the webcast were Rebecca Lee, a principal in PwC's International Tax Services Group, Pat Brown, a principal in PwC's International Tax Policy Group, Marco Fiacadori, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Group, and Robert Vetteretti, a managing director in PwC's Financial and Treasury Management Consulting Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the effect of tax reform on cash pooling arrangements, as well as a discussion of what documentation treasurers should create and retain. Have a listen. Well, speaking of upside, guys, the single biggest question that I get from the Treasury space around tax reform is, so does this mean that the U.S. can be our in-house bank or can be our cash pool leader or that the U.S. can participate in the cash pool? So, Pat? Yeah, so the question is a great one. Does tax reform allow a U.S. parent to participate in global pooling without adverse U.S. tax effects? So, of course, the glib short answer is it depends, but there is a much greater opportunity, right? Before, this was not a conversation you could have, mm-hmm. Rebecca. This is really your, your point, right? And I think it's a really good one. You know, Section 956 always just stood right there as an absolute stop because you really couldn't lend money back to the United States without having very careful controls around all of that. And that essentially meant that you couldn't just sweep money from your offshore affiliates back to a U.S. centralized repository of that stuff. You had to have very careful controls and monitoring in place. And we'll betide you if you didn't because you would have inadvertent 956 loans and then you'd have to figure out what kind of damage was done. So I think the great news, and I really do think it is great news from the perspective of a Treasury Department is, we can have this conversation now, actually. Now, based on all the things we talked about before, so the rate's lower now. Now, in a cash pooling arrangement, you may actually be somewhat indifferent to the rate because you're talking about a lot of netting that goes on. There's not necessarily a lot of huge positions one way or the other. Um, so you may not care as much about the rate, but you have to think about it and you have to model it through. The other thing that I always think about in this space, and we touched on it already, and you know, um, Marco touched on it as well, is again, in the beat space, you don't net, at least mm-hmm. not yet. And there's obviously been dialogue about under what circumstances netting could be allowed. When you're thinking about a U.S. multinational and you've got guilty to be concerned with, so this is the inclusion of your of your um, offshore earnings into the U.S. tax return. How much tax will I pay? A lot of that is driven by how much debt I have in the U.S., how much interest expense I have in the U.S. Again, that's not a net concept, right? So I don't have the ability as under the regs as currently constituted to say, well, I've got some interest expense in the U.S., but I've also got interest income in the U.S. Can I just net those pieces together and only look at the net amount for purposes of determining how it impacts my foreign tax credit limitation in the guilty space? I don't have the ability to do that. And so as a result, I have to look at these things you know, very carefully, go piece by piece through all of this. Again, if I think about 163J, by contrast, because it operates on a net basis, mm-hmm. and I think about cash pooling, because I know I'm going to have positions going in both directions, I still have to model it, I still have to think about it, but it's probably less of a concern. So I think the great news, and again, I do think it's great news is, let's have that conversation. Let's actually have a conversation that we could never have before. Mm -hmm. And it's a fantastic opportunity to engage in that dialogue with the treasury teams. Yeah, no, I mean, this is one that, you know, from most treasurers' perspective is, it's on top of everyone's mind, right? Because this is tremendous upside, whether it's 
reducing the amount of cash I need to run my business by 100, 200, 500 million dollars, we're talking about a potential, you know, very large economic benefit. Yep. Right? I yes. mean, and without a lot of necessarily a lot of incremental operational day-to-day -day activity, you know what I mean? Because yes. I probably have someone already, you know, helping me manage that pool anyway. If I'm just yes. adding entities, yeah, there's some some things I got to deal with, but it's a great ROI play for me. Right. Right. At the end of the day. And in calculating that ROI, I know for the clients where we're actually having these conversations today and we have work plans around them, a lot of it is not sort of, we ended up, and so far we've been a little bit U.S.-centric in this discussion, looking at the potential withholding rates from all the different countries that are going to participate. If you've gotten yourself to a good spot that your European Treasury Center can lend and borrow from everyone in Europe and there's no tax drag with that, you want to pressure test, can I get to the same result if folks are all lending up to the U.S.? Similarly, in jurisdictions with currency controls or currency restrictions, yep. you know, you end up having to go from a very conceptual, strategic conversation of can we do it to the more the basic blocking and tackling of what is the ROI if we choose to do it, and then where are the places where even if we move forward, we're still going to have some retrofitted sort of old school cash yeah. stuck offshore. It's a great point, Rebecca, your point about withholding taxes, because one of the things that I think people who do not practice in international tax, even tax lawyers who don't practice in international tax don't necessarily understand, is that the U.S. does not have a great tax treaty network mm -hmm. relative to most of Europe. And so if you've got a European Treasury Center, now, first of all, if you're within the EU, it's quite generally quite frictionless to lend, and Mark could talk a lot more about this, within the EU to lend and borrow around. But even beyond that, most European countries have a much more robust treaty network than the United States. Uh, and what that can mean is you may think, wow, I've got this great opportunity, but when you actually pressure test that and look at the particular jurisdictions that are involved and the funds that are flowing back and forth, you know, a withholding tax on a cash pooling situation, because margins are razor, razor thin on that, can often end up being obviously well north of 100% effective tax rate on, on the economics of that arrangement. And that is not something you want to stumble into, right? That's a bad day at the office for the treasurer and the tax guy. Right. And I think one other just you know, thing that um, companies should be um, considering is, Everyone keeps asking about, well, now can the U.S. be in a global pool? Now, you do have time zone differences, value dating stuff. <laughs> That's a yeah, dynamic sure, sure. from the bank. So depending on who you're doing the bank, having the pooling arrangements with, there could be in the future, just like a lot of people have European pools or Asia pools, potentially there's America's pool that right. gets added to the mix. So right. it doesn't have to be all in or all out. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? Yeah, so even sure. depending on what your Canadian operations or Mexico, now yep. a lot of Latin America is challenging. Right. Granted. But it's challenging but for everyone. It could be, <laughs> it could be an interesting dynamic that now you actually have three pillars of pools globally. Yep. Yep. No, Again, depending on your business model. Right? And that actually, yeah, it's funny, you're ripping from the headlines what I'm living, which is a lot of the companies <laughs> I'm working with, we're starting with, can we pool with Latin America and Canada because right. we don't have the time zone issues. We have currency issues that are a little bit more managed um, the other thing that always comes to mind when we start talking about withholding tax and withholding tax drag is a lot of companies have historically defaulted to a notional pooling structure under a belief, and we could debate whether it's a fully formed belief or not, that because all of the individual banking relationships are with the local bank affiliate or with, let's say, one location in the UK post uh, Lehman, uh, where folks didn't want to take individual branch banking risk, um, that helps them alleviate what would otherwise be withholding tax risk. And I think the other question that folks are thinking about is, if, I've, if I'm in a notional pool situation currently, are there incentives to move to a physical pool and get all this ROI that Rob's talking about? Or on the flip side, are there strong incentives to stay notional? Right, 
Right. And I do think, again, if I think about the provisions that have changed, I think about BEAT that applies to, uh, you know, to payments to foreign related parties. I think about 163J, again, currently applies both in the U.S. and at the CFC level, applies on a net basis, applies to payments to unrelated parties. I think about the impacts of guilty, which really is, frankly, mostly going to be relevant if you're talking about debt that's in the U.S., um, I mean, it's not like it won't impact your calculation if it's outside the U.S., but it's hard for me to see that the impact can be quite as surprising to people. Um, and so what I would say on this is one just has to carefully go through all these things and think about the implications of whether or not you have an internal company that basically is netting these positions and being a single face to a bank, because in some circumstances, it's going to cut in your favor to do that. And in some circumstances, it's going to cut against you. The net of all of it no pun intended, may not be that significant, frankly. Right. It may be that notional pooling, to your point, Rebecca, is just every bit as comfortable as actual physical pooling. Um, but it's not something that you can answer without doing a bit of work in terms of looking at how these rules may have changed the outcome. So I think it's, it's time well spent. I don't think it's an enormous amount of time. This is not a massive exercise to think through these points, at least not for most companies. Um, but it's something you want to do as well with the Treasury team and understand, well, what are the benefits from their perspective of a notional pooling arrangement uh, versus a physical pooling arrangement? And I don't know your thoughts on that. Well, and because there is another force out in the market. So the banking reg, so like Basel, right? The Basel Accord actually has created interesting dynamics of, of banks offering notional pooling solutions. So depending on which banking partner you use for the notional pool, the economics actually have changed over the last few years, mm -hmm. right? And that's why some companies have switched banks or they change where they actually have, you know, the, uh, uh, which country specifically it's housed in within, within Europe. So there's other dynamics outside of the tax reg world that are also affecting people's thought process around it, right? right. And uh, so, yeah, it's just something that someone should evaluate and at least outline the pros and cons of each yep. and at least have directionally yep. if you're headed in the right direction. Yep. Right. And a shameless plug on that point, one of the things we learned through doing toll tax uh, reviews for a lot of companies is that folks who thought they had a notional pool because of these changes in the banking regs and because of changes to their notional pooling agreements, when you pulled the agreements, you actually figured out they weren't notional pools at all. They were physical sweeps wrapped in a notional pooling wrapper because all of these changes in the banking regulations made it somewhat untenable for some of the large banks to run notional pools. Um, in the similar theme of kind of quick hits, all of these changes we're talking about have the risk of changing what the company views as their foreign currency exposure or create opportunity if you're centralizing more, if you're able to net down currency exposure in one functional currency location, all of a sudden your risk to the market may be smaller. You may be able to shrink the size of your hedging overlay and your hedging strategy. And all of those things have knock-on consequences from a tax standpoint. We care about where hedges are. We care about the size of them. We care about how they're identified, not for financial statement purposes, but for tax purposes. And even moderately small changes factually to where the trade is booked or what is identified as hedging or not hedging um, have massive knock-on effects. And much like we've been talking gross versus net the entire hour, um, a lot of the downside risk with a mixed ID or things like that uh, is a tax on the gross gains, not net. Now, the upside opportunity is that because of these hedging and these matching rules, we may be able to get a lot of currency gain or loss in a way that matches or makes it aligned with the book treatment, or my favorite, it gets booked to equity or OCI, and it never hits your effective tax rate. So these are all good things, all opportunities. <laughs>
Margo, we've been talking about a lot of strategic, high-level, kind of C-suite discussions. From a nuts and bolts standpoint, what do companies need to be thinking about today in terms of the documentation they retain, not just from kind of a technical tax standpoint, but from a treasury standpoint? What should we be asking our treasurers to create or retain currently? Yeah, so tre treasurer will have access to the data and to a number of inputs in the tax components of the calculation. So very important is that relationship. In terms of documents, well, obviously supporting the interest rates, especially in the company. Um, and this is becoming more challenging, especially if you're moving from a structure to a different structure, you know, explain the change and, and continue to support that interest rate going forward. The characterization, um, you know, that that capacity, that, you know, character of the instrument is highly, highly important to maintain the integrity of the tax position. So that type of documentation becomes, I think, critical to, you know, to the tax department, but is very much integrated with the, um, with the work that the treasurer does. Uh, important aspect is maintaining monitoring and information and evidence, for example, in the cash pool of the balances of the sweeps and, you know, the ability to really treat these as uh, access and cash type of, of uh, of activity as opposed to a long-term uh, lending facility. So this type of documentation would be, um, I would say, primary responsibility of the tax department, but the treasury um, department would be involved and, and collaborating. And I would argue, I mean, I'm, I'm sure most treasuries out there that, that are on the line now either have a treasury management system yep. or are considering one. Mm -hmm. And I would guess, because I do a lot of these types of selections and implementations, that 99% of them have not fa properly factored in those types of requirements in the tool. Not that it's gonna make or break their decision in of itself, but again, it's better when they're going through something that they know what they're getting into uh, from a technology perspective. So I think it's one thing that a lot of the tax organizations could do is, you know, if they are aware of going through the selection that maybe there's five items that get added to the list. And just so they know whether the technology vendor may or is considering having that type of functionality so they could support it. Otherwise, treasury's gonna have to maintain it outside of a platform, and that's our worst nightmare, right? And so a lot of the systems design work that we've done um, as a firm supporting treasury functions has been around data field design. So what are all the different data fields we need post-tax reform? Does the system have the ability to track it? And if not, where do we go about finding, tracking, and maintaining that information? So I'll tell you, doing it in the vendor selection process is best, but if not, there is a way to go back and retrofit. So Marco, maybe you can give us a couple of minutes. We've been phenomenally US focused for almost the entire hour. Um, none of this happens in a vacuum, right? Not at all. And in fact, to make it more fun, you know, the rest of the world is moving even faster possibly than the US tax reform. So here on the slide, you see four important uh, drivers of the current landscape outside of the US, OECD guidance, and in particular, the digital um, economy and all the conversations that are now bubbling up, you know, even IMF is now involved and there are a number of stakeholders and it's a growing um, activity. So um, raising a lot of the uncertainty around what is gonna be the actual structural framework architecture for going forward for the tax and obviously impacting treasury. Uh, EU anti-avoidance um, directive kicking in, so a number of changes that have been 
um, you know, coming through and will continue to come through um, are the result really of legislation and changes in, in the EU space with respect to holding company and CFC rules. Um, BEPS, um, you know, that's an item that still goes on in terms of implementations and, you know, as mentioned, there is an evolution of how the OECD and generally the stakeholders are seeing the BEPS initiative in a, in a you know, contemporaneous way now. Um, and DAC 6, which is really a mandatory disclosure, which will further create questions around information, documentation, disclosure, um, where, you know, there is sensitivity, public um, sensitivity around who's going to be the, the audience and the reader and potentially, um, you know, form an opinion about, you know, treasury activity um, within a group and multinational enterprises. Terrifying. <laughs> so, <laughs> only bring that news here. <laughs> no, and, and each of those topics could be and has been yep. a separate webcast in our tax readiness series. So more to come on each of those. Rob, maybe you can spend a couple of minutes just bringing us home. I think we've talked about a variety of topics. Yep. Yeah. So again, it's very you know treasury oriented type type of lens. But you know, as tax professionals out there, you know, there's certainly a number of conversations you could have with with your treasury colleagues if you haven't already. But, you know, as I talked about earlier, there's obviously the overall strategic agenda and, and things that's already on our plate that we're trying to achieve and the associated objectives. But there are very just functional specific areas as some of them listed here on the, the left-hand side, right? How I'm doing my pooling, my netting, my in-house bank, you know, the use of my technology and all these day-to-day -day activities that are operationally intensive, right? My, my, usually my corporate finance group is very small capital markets, because I'm going to the market periodically, but they're dealing in billions of dollars often, right? But the majority of my people, where they're spending their time, is on operational types of activities. So we really need to understand those implications. Again, am I happy, sad, or indifferent of the tax reform on my activities, mm -hmm. right? And whether it's that activity from a strategic objective perspective or just day-to-day -day operational. Like, it would be great for me to know that. So as I go through the rest of 2019 or think forward around 2020, 2021, do I need to think about anything different or not? You don't need to give me an answer, but at least outline, and you gave some great examples earlier, outline some basic analysis to see how much I care or whether I care or not. Right. You know what I mean? Just sure. give me some directional yeah. guidance. Now, granted, people don't have a lot of time to do that. But the other side is, which is the right-hand side of this page, is about what I'll call the knock-on effects, right? So Treasury is already going through a lot of types of activities. So if you can think through how any of the uh, tax reform items will accelerate or decelerate any of these types of items, it would be really helpful. So we see some companies saying, you know what? we got to push our technology and our digital agenda uh, a little bit harder because we need more visibility into cash flow so we can respond to things yeah. properly yeah. and better manage the cash conversion cycle and those types of items. So some treasury organizations are saying, look, let's use tax reform also as one of our levers to help us drive the changes we wanted to do anyway. Mm -hmm. And this is right. whether it's icing on the cake or it's the core ingredient. And where you couldn't have cake. the conversation before. Yeah, right. exactly. I agree with that. Yep. So I think as long as you have that conversation that says here's how you can do things better right. and here's yeah, some other nuances you got to do a little bit differently right. and make it less of an episodic event like oh just do this thing this one time it becomes more relevant for me in terms of how I think about my my yeah. team and my business. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to go down the line and get your tea takeaways. Start with Pat. Yeah look I would say more opportunities than risks in this space in terms of treasury uh, functions, treasury alignment. 
uh, as a result of U.S. tax reform, not to be done blindly, obviously. Um, uh, you know, a lot of care and thought needs to be given, uh, but there are definitely more opportunities and risks to have that conversation where before there just were things that we weren't able to engage in and really have that dialogue. So I think that's a real positive. Okay. Yeah, collaboration and modeling, I would say it's a joint effort and there will be benefit and risk management. Uh, I think that's really key for, for the audience. And I would say size the prize, because that's what I kind of care about at the end of the day, <laughs> right? Size it up a little bit so, so I can decide whether I need to do things differently you know, or, or not. And to me, it's all about getting in line with the Treasury objectives, because if you can find a way to hitch our wagon to a star and achieve the things we want to achieve from a tax standpoint and generate additional ROI for Treasury, everyone wins. So I think this has been an exciting discussion. Uh, certainly, we hope folks in the audience will continue it in their organizations, and we're here to help. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.